The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in your Bibles, not to the book of Exodus, but instead to the book of Hebrews. Matthew had us affirm uh, in our, with our affirmation of faith, our belief in the, the, the providence of God, uh, in God's providence. We're not going to be looking at the text that speaks so much to providence, at least in the way he thought, but in his providence, we'll look at a, another text this evening. We are going to look at a text which actually uh, uh, spans chapter 5 as well as chapter 6, but I'm going to read from verses 11, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, until chapter 6 and verse 3. It's in some ways a strange text to bring, uh, pick up in the middle of the, the context there. Keep in mind that uh, the writer to the Hebrews has been speaking to the priesthood of Christ, his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And so we pick up then in, uh, in verse 11, uh, and as I said, from, from verse 11 until verse 3 of chapter 6. Let's worship the Lord together by listening carefully to this, the public reading of his word. Hebrews chapter 5 and beginning in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Father, grant this evening as we consider this portion of your word before us that we would be found to be those who are not dull of hearing, but that we would be those who listen and listen well and that we might hear the voice of the good shepherd and that we would follow him on that path unto eternal life to which you have called us in him. Open up our eyes to see marvelous things. Help us to hide your word in our hearts, and and we pray, O Lord, that it would bear much fruit, fruit in our lives, fruit that would endure, by which your name, your great name, would be glorified in us. Hear us and bless us, for we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we consider this text before us, I want, you, I want you to imagine something. Imagine if you were invited to a dinner party, and there you were sitting at the table. It's time for, for dinner to be served, and the host comes over, and you see that it's going to be a, a, a delicious dinner. The smell is great, maybe a nice choice steak with all of the, the fixings, and so you're ready. You, you can't wait to be served. But you find that when the the host comes over to you, suddenly you you discover that it's a different menu for you. Instead of giving you steak, what are you given? Maybe milk and graham graham crackers. 
You're wondering what's going on here. Well, your your friends have orchestrated this. It's kind of a, a, a sort of a, a joke, but in, in some ways a painful, cruel joke. They're sending you a message, a word of reproof, a word of rebuke for the way in which of late you've been acting in such an immature fashion. And so you're left there kind of embarrassed. How do you feel? Maybe a sense of maybe a sense of shame. They're rebuking you for the way you've been acting like a little child. And so, and so you're left feeling a little bit like the writer to the Hebrews was making the readers feel as they received the word, uh, words of our text this morning. He rebukes them, or this evening, he rebukes them for their immaturity, saying you ought to be teachers by now. Instead, you're acting like, like little children. You should be enjoying solid foods but instead, it's like you're still strapped to your mother, nursing from your mother like an infant. One commentator describes this with the words, biting irony, sarcasm, shame. This is rebuke. This is rebuke, but it's rebuke which God intends for a good purpose. Rebuke is always good in the lives of those who are in Christ. It may not be easy to receive sometimes. Sometimes it brings a, a painful Sting, but it's designed by God to calculate, to, 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 to kill the flesh and to condemn and put to death in us that old man whose identity is in this world so that more and more we might find that new man living in us, that more and more we might find, that, find our life in Christ. And that's what's going on in this text, this text which is a call to mature. God calls his people to mature to grow up and lay hold of the fullness of their life in Jesus Christ. As we consider this this evening, I have just two points from our text. The first I want us to see is, is, is that this is a call, it really is a call to grow out of old covenant infancy unto new covenant adulthood. Now that's really the, the message in this context in Hebrews, this redemptive historical context, but this very much is relevant for us today as well, a call to grow out of old covenant infancy unto new covenant adulthood. In the the broader context of this epistle, you might remind that there's that great theme of the supremacy of Christ, of the, the supremacy of Christ and what he has done, and therefore the supremacy of the new covenant over the old covenant. The old passes away, the new abides forever. This epistle is to Jewish Christians, some of them perhaps wanting to embrace the old, but they're also finding themselves, or sorry, wanting to embrace the new, but they're also finding themselves clinging to the old. Some of them are, are now, because of persecution, they're, they're, they're tempted with the prospect of abandoning the new altogether and going back to the old. When we keep this in mind, I think it helps us answer the question of just what is the milk in view in our text? What is the, the, uh, the elementary doctrine of Christ as it's described there in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6? You see in the, uh, the list of items there, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. There's, there's something interesting about this group of items, F.F. F. Bruce pointed out, that, that it's remarkable 
It's remarkable how little in this list is distinctive of Christianity, for every item could have its place in a fairly orthodox Jewish community. That is to say, Orthodox Jews, they believed all of these things listed here. That This led Bruce to believe that what we see here is, was sort of a, a list of items that, that represent kind of the beginning Christian doctrine specifically for Jew, Jews who had come to Christ. That this was doctrine for a, specifically for a Jewish Christian church rather than a Gentile church. Now, along similar lines, perhaps it, this could have referred to the kind of teaching that, that pertained particularly to that intermediary stage, uh, that stage of transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We might think of, of teaching like the teaching of, of Apollos we learned about when we were in the, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. You might remember how, how Apollos, he was preaching Jesus but remember how he had to be taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila. He had to have the, the way of God explained to him more fully or more accurately. For one thing, his, his teaching on baptism was, was, it had not come to New Covenant maturity. He, he knew only John's baptism. Perhaps there was milk, as it were, milk of, of different kinds, but it seems that to one degree or another, this was the teaching that, that lacked maturity. It was... It was teaching which was foundational for, for Jews. It, it, it came out of the Old Covenant, really grew out of those, those Old Covenant seeds of the gospel, but, but, but the, these seeds had not yet grown up, had not blossomed into flowers of New Covenant fullness. And such milk, such milk was okay for a time. It was okay during that transitional phase from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant that was a time when God was being patient with those, those Jewish believers who are yet clinging to certain aspects of the Old Covenant system. For example, Romans chapter 14, Paul commanded the believers not to be passing judgment on the weaker brothers, those who continued to observe the Jewish calendar or the Jewish dietary laws. And so it seems that God and his patient was, was willing to endure for a time those Christians who were trying, were kind of living sort of within Judaism, but also within Christianity. We, we learned about this in our adult Sunday school class. That there was a time when, when some would, would continue to attend synagogue on Saturday, but then they would go to church on Sunday. And in one sense, why not, right? They, they hadn't renounced their Jewish roots. They, they, they saw Christianity as the fulfillment of their Jewish faith. But a time had come, it seemed, a time had come when, when persecution might no longer allow for, for, for folks to live within both worlds. As more and more the, 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 the Jewish, the synagogue leadership began to, to persecute those in the church, they were really kind of calling for, even demanding a choice. Which will it be? You've got to choose. Will it be Christ or the synagogue? Will it be Christ or the temple? And so there was, a, there was a fear, a fear of breaking from the old. And you can see why such fear would have made it attractive for some to simply stick to the milk. Just, just hold to that, that Christian teaching, which, yes, it's, it's Christian, but, but it resembles Jewish teaching closely enough that it's less likely to get, in tr- get you in trouble, right? To get you in trouble with the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Yes, maybe I'd prefer simply to, to live on the ABCs. It's a bit safer that way, right? 
But the writer was calling the believers to grow up. Grow up out of such old covenant infancy. If you are in Christ, he was saying, you must not cling to the old. Persecuting Jews might no longer allow it. But more importantly, God himself and his own sovereign uh, redemptive historical timetable will not allow it either. The Lord of history, he's the Lord of redemption, and he is the one who has ushered in and brought about this, this new age in Christ Jesus. If you flip over in your Bibles just a page, you see what I'm, I'm talking about. I think illustrated well in, in chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 8 and verse 13, the very end of the chapter there where it says this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one absolute, obsolete, excuse me, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Notice that the, 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 it seems to be an acknowledgement of kind of a transition. It did not immediately vanish away. But nevertheless, the message was clear. Christ has come. The old will vanish. It's, it's, it's vanishing away. The old covenant is coming to an end. And accordingly, then, in our text, he exhorts the believers to hunger after the new covenant, solid food, rather than to, to continue living as those who are still living on the milk, to, to live as those who, are, as he describes it in, in chapter 5 and verse 12, those who are needing only the basic principles of the oracles of God, the basic principles. Uh, the NIV translates that, the elementary truths. It's, it's the Greek word stoichia. To, to continue on a diet of milk is to, to cling to the, the, the elementary truths, the stoichia, uh, is to refuse God's new covenant meat. It's interesting that Paul uses that the Apostle Paul uses that word stoichia in, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3 to speak of those ceremonial ordinances of the Mosaic law. And in chapter 4, verse 9 of that same epistle, he describes them as weak and poor elements, weak and poor in contrast with the great realities to which they were intended to lead God's people as those things themselves would pass away. The old must pass the new has come. And it's interesting that, that that same word, stoichia, is also used by Paul in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 to refer to the philosophy and vain deceit of the world. You see, to, to cling to the milk of the old covenant when the new covenant had come, well, that was like, that was like clinging to, to the, the sinful principles of a fallen world which is in rebellion against God. Isn't that true? And that, that makes sense, I think, if you stop and think about the fact that, that the old covenant, in some ways, because of the sin of the nation, the old covenant itself became something of a, a symbol of a world that was in rebellion against God and would come under judgment, would certainly then pass away. See the parallelism there, right? The, the old covenant is passing away. The world is passing away. But the good news is that for the Christian, we know that the, that the new had come, that Christ had, had come, and in his death and resurrection, he had ushered in the new covenant order, the new world. It had begun in his finished work. He had died to the old, and he had been raised anew, and believers now in him had died to the old and had been raised to the new. 
And brothers and sisters, that's, that's wonderful good news. That, that, that's a gospel reality, which was not only for those Hebrew Jewish Christians, that's for every one of us here this evening. When you hear of God bringing to an end the old covenant and ushering in the new, you can see him in so doing, bringing about your own death and your resurrection and that new life to which he has called you in Jesus Christ. The old you, identified with a world that has fallen and under sin, under judgment. The old you, identified with the old covenant, as it were, has died and been done away with, passed away. If you are in Christ this evening, you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And if you see that, then you see why there's such an urgent call to grow up then unto maturity. It was time for the believers, you see, to to grow up, grow up out of old covenant childhood and, and unto that new covenant adulthood into which God had ushered them. It was time to die to the old, that now more and more in their, full, in their fullness they might find a new life to which God had called them in Christ. Well, why was it just so urgent that they would do so? Well, that brings us to our last, our final point this evening is they needed to be strengthened by the gospel in order to prepare them for suffering, suffering and, and possibly even death. Be strengthened unto suffering and even death. Persecution, even unto death. How could they possibly endure it? How could they possibly withstand the great temptation to to renounce Christ in order to save their life in this world? It's interesting. So some believe that that term, word of righteousness, there mentioned in verse 13, that that term, word of righteousness, specifically refers to instruction concerning a willingness to experience martyrdom. Uh, William Lane interprets it that way, and he, he, he suggests that, that that is the solid food, that, the, that that is the teaching for the mature, instruction concerning perseverance unto death. Lane cites the church father Polycarp as one who in, interpreted that expression that way, the word of righteousness. I, I'm not sure whether I agree with that interpretation or not, but ultimately, is that not the call of the gospel? Are we not all called to, to be to, willing to die? Is that not what God calls us and calling us to be those who are being sanctified? Sanctification is what? It's, it's, it involves dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. And indeed, as believers, we, we are called, every one of us, are we not, to grow up and be ready, grow up to be ready to die for Christ and for the sake of the gospel. So I think that's a good reminder for us, even as we think about the current moral state of our society. We should know better than to think that, well, no one in modern America could ever be called to experience martyrdom, suffer martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. That could never happen in our lifetime, right? Hopefully all of us know to think that way would be naive and foolish. We need to remember that the, the temptation to forsake life, and to cling to our life in this world is every bit as real for us today as it was for these Hebrew Jewish Christians. We know that the evil one today is no less active, no less active prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's not one Christian here this evening that the evil one would not love to devour. 
And he's not so much interested in your body as he is interested in your soul. He wants to shipwreck your faith and he wants to keep you weak and immature. Do you not see the danger? Do you not see the the, 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 the danger of all of the powers of hell waging war against you, and do you not therefore see the urgent need to grow up, to mature? This is a good reminder, by the way, that, the, that, that that's the goal of true Christian maturity. It's a, it's a lowering of ourselves. It's a humbling ourselves. It's preparing ourselves for death. Isn't that interesting? We want to mature to the point where we're strong, to the point where we're able to be teachers. I think all of us are called, in a general way, to be be able to teach, right? Teach our children or teach others. We want to be strong, but to what end? To what end do we acquire knowledge? So that we'll be looked up to? So that we'll enjoy a great status that might be attached to that? I think it's easy to get this wrong here. We can when acquire knowledge and see this, and it becomes an occasion for sin. It leads to pride. Maybe we lust after the opportunity to impress others with how much we know. That's not true teaching, and that's not Christian maturity, is it? Christian maturity growth is never to grow up unto self-exaltation in this world. Well, what good is it? All of our Christian maturity, our gospel knowledge, if it does not lower us, if it does not humble us, if it does not work to crucify our flesh, no Christian growth, Christian maturity is, also, is always unto death, dying unto ourselves. Was it not so with Christ? We keep in mind that Jesus himself, he grew, didn't he? he? He grew in his knowledge. There was a process of maturity. He too had to learn. In fact, it says that in the verse just prior to our text, chapter 5, verse 8, we read about Jesus, how he learned obedience. But his growth, his maturity was not unto self-exaltation. It was unto death. And so God raised him up from the dead and crowned him with everlasting glory. So sin is so deceitful that it wants to take the gospel and turn it on its head and blind us to its presence while it continues to come to us and tempt us and say, forsake Christ and find your life in me. Brothers and sisters, I think all of this only illustrates why it is that we so desperately need the gospel. We need to hear the gospel again and again Do you not see it this evening? Do you not see that without a steady diet of the gospel, how danger, we place ourselves in danger of of, of plunging ourselves into spiritual ruin? We forget these things. We live our lives as if we don't need to hear the gospel, right? We live our lives sometimes as if it's, it's, perhaps it's not all that important to be here sitting under the preaching of the word, right? Maybe I can find a better way to spend my Sunday morning or my Sunday evening than to attend diligently to the public proclamation of the gospel. For the Hebrew believers, the reality of the spiritual battle was evident. For perhaps for some of them, even as they received the words which are before us this morning, the critical moment was at hand where soon they might be forced to make that choice between Judaism or Christianity, between, between Christ or their life in this world. Will you forsake Christ or will you be willing to die for Christ? Perhaps for many others, the mounting tension, the prospect of, of, uh, of persecution, it was, yeah, the tempting was, temptation was simply leave, leave the church, 
Leave Christ and simply go back to the synagogue, go back to Judaism. Humanly, socially speaking, leaving Judaism was kind of like a choice for death. To be put out of the synagogue, it was like dying. One could be ostracized from family, cut off from inheritance perhaps, and maybe lose money, lose property, certainly be cut off from the, the sacrificial system of the temple. The cost would be so great. And some had stopped listening to the gospel. What danger. Look at the way he describes them again in verse 11. is those who had become dull of hearing or, or sluggish, negligent in hearing. Kind of reminds me of what I became like back in the days when I used to fly a lot. I'd be sitting there on the airplane and, and suddenly would come those pre-flight instructions. Of course, they'd tell you, be very careful, listen to this. And then they'd launch into those instructions about uh, how to put your seatbelt on and, and how to use that oxygen mask and where are the emergency doors. And, and, and they'd explain those evacuation procedures. Well, I'd traveled so much that I got bored of listening to it and I just stopped listening completely. That's not a good idea. And I'd come to my senses and chide myself a bit and say, no, you should listen to this. It's never really mattered before. It's really, I've never really needed to know these things, but the time might come. It might come when I might need to know exactly how to use that oxygen mask for myself and for the sake of my little children. A time may come where I might need to know exactly where that emergency door is located in order to evacuate safely and quickly. And you see the point here. It's not that not, not, not like the, 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 the plane is about to go down, as it were, and clinging to Christ. But the point is, the point is, if, if it's important for our physical life, a safe flight, how much more important is it that we be listening attentively to the gospel, knowing that our, our spiritual life might be dependent upon it? The critical moment might come where we might be forced to choose between our life in this world and our life in Christ. And we need to be strengthened by the gospel in order to be ready to make the right choice. Uh, That's such a prominent theme in the message of of the book of Hebrews. We see it in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The warning is that the one who so clings to his life in this world that he begins to to refuse to stomach the meat of the gospel, that one may very well so endanger his soul that at the critical moment he'll end up making the wrong choice. Choose his life in this world over his life in Christ. That's a sober warning that reemerges throughout this epistle and it becomes particularly heightened in the text which follows our text this evening, chapter 6, verse 4, and following. The warning is that if you continue acting like a child, continue drinking only milk, you may put yourself in in grave danger of, of making the wrong choice and even falling into a place that you do not want to be. There's a warning even of, of apostasy. And so the Hebrew believers needed, and we need, to hear the gospel. I think we're, we're mistaken to interpret this passage to, to mean that we, re, we really have to get beyond the gospel. Have you ever heard these words interpreted that way? You know, some might take this to say, well, we've, we've heard the gospel enough. It's time for us to leave the basics and get on to the more practical aspects of Christianity. Of course, I'm not saying that it's not important to 
uh, get on with, to, to learn of the pra- practical aspects of Christianity, but it's a mistake to sort of treat the gospel as if itself, the gospel itself is not exceedingly practical. And such an interpretation really doesn't fit the context here at all. Verse 11 makes it quite clear that the solid food is the gospel, that instruction about Christ and his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, that the solid food is instruction concerning the way in which Christ has has made full atonement for all of our sins and has has passed through the heavens and he ever lives to to make intercession uh, for us, that, that he gives us that boldness by which we approach the throne of God. We need to learn these things and be reminded of these things and be strengthened in all of these things. As you consider again some of those those elementary doctrines mentioned there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And just, just think about the practical encouragement and strength that it would have given new uh, Jewish Christian converts to feed on those things and to feed on them not in their old covenant milk form, as it were, but rather as they're fleshed out in all of their new covenant fullness. Verse 2 speaks of instructions about washings, literally baptisms. Again, there were, there were old covenant baptisms, ceremonial purifications. They were tied to the earthly temple. Well, Christ's purification work hadn't taken a place in that earthly temple, but had taken place in, in, in the heavenly spiritual temple. The old earthly order had given way to the infinitely greater, the, the, the supreme new heavenly order. But you see, it's only when you've been nourished by the solid food of the gospel of Christ that even if they come to you and they threaten to put you out of the temple, you're ready to stand and say with confidence, I have no need of an earthly priest. I have in Christ a high priest, an eternal heavenly high priest. See, that's the solid food, isn't it? That's the solid food. The writer writes about three chapters later in chapter 9 and following where we're we're told there that, that Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. We're told that how he entered not into the earthly temple, but into that greater and more perfect tent. He's entered heaven itself, not part of this creation, and he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by means of his own blood, and we're told that he did so in order to secure our eternal redemption. In fact, it says in verse 14 of that chapter, 914, that he did so in order to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true, to serve the living God. Dead works. Interesting, we see that in our, in our text, don't we? Chapter 6, verse 1, it's mentioned as one of the elementary doctrines is repentance from dead, Works. What, what were dead works according to a Jew? Well, perhaps evil works that would issue forth in death, perhaps particularly uh, uh, sins, works uh, which warranted capital punishment. You could die for committing those sins. But now think about this. It's understandable, understandable how a, a, Christian, a Jewish Christian might be fearful of being sentenced to death by the religious leaders, Right? And according to, to Old Covenant thinking, to be sentenced to death would, to, would be to go to, gra- go to the grave under a curse. But here with the dawning of the New Covenant, 
God had brought about such a radical change and had brought about a radical, radical change of perspective. Even if the earthly court, even if the Jewish leaders sentence me to death, my conscience will be clean. How so? Because I now have as my high priest one whom the religious leaders condemned and turned over to be crucified. They crucified him, but God vindicated him as the righteous one by raising him from the dead. And I, too, will be raised. You see, that's the new covenant fleshing out of the elementary doctrines of the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment those elementary doctrines we see in our text. Could, could, it, could anything short of that, the gospel, afford one such confidence in the face of death? Could anyone ever deliver you from your fear of death but Christ, the one who himself has conquered death, conquered sin and death? Could temple sacrifices ever do that for you? It's interesting, again, that our text mentions as an elementary doctrine the laying on of hands. I wonder again if, if there this is that's a reference really to the sacrificial system. There was the laying on of hands in the ordination of the temple priest. And there was even the symbolical act of the, the guilt of the offender being transferred to the animal by the priestly laying his hands on the head of the animal for, before it was sacrificed to make atonement. And you can imagine how perhaps a an immature Jewish Christian convert perhaps found it difficult, difficult to live without those visible, outward, tangible expressions of the reality of forgiveness. But you see, now he was called not to look to those sacrifices, but to look to Christ, to look to Jesus, to look to his sacrifice, to look not to the earthly temple, but look to the invisible. He was to trust just as we are to trust in our heavenly intercessor. So he was called, yes, to be willing to break from Judaism. And, in, in, and so in order to do so, he needed, he needed that solid food. He needed the gospel again and again. He needed a solid diet of that new covenant gospel fullness. He needed to hear words like we hear in chapter 10. If you flip over to chapter 10 and verse 19, I'm going to read just one more text this evening. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That, brothers and sisters, that's solid food. Nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness. Oh, by the power of the Spirit, may God work in us a hunger to, to, to feed our souls, to feed and be nourished on that gospel food, to feed upon Christ, to hunger for him, and to be nourished by him more and more. And so may we indeed grow up unto that maturity, that maturity we see, again, back in our text described in, in verse 14 of chapter 5. May we be like that one who, who has, has grown up and, and has, has discerned or has the power of discernment to distinguish good 
from evil. Certainly that calls for discernment of seeing what is sin and and seeing what God delights in. But but the call there to discern evil from good is, is one that is possible only in the life of that one who has come to see the supremacy of Christ and therefore nourished on the the gospel is is one who constantly chooses heavenly blessing over earthly comforts. It's the one who's who's learned to be willing to endure reproach and affliction. It's one who, like those Hebrew believers, uh, the the ones who did walk in obedience were commended as, as those who had learned to accept the plundering of property for Christ's sake, knowing that they had a treasure in heaven, knowing that they had an inheritance up in heaven, that city whose builder and maker is God. May we be like those ones. Heavenly-minded, may we be, become trained accordingly and so constantly be those who, yes, make the right moral choice, rejecting evil, choosing good, but even prepared should the day come. Should we be forced to make that ultimate moral choice, choosing between our life in this world or our life in Christ, if that day of martyrdom, martyrdom comes to us, may we know the blessing of being able to say on that day, indeed, what we ought to be able to be saying every day, Lord, I forsake myself. I gladly take up my cross and I follow you. Let me die. Let me die that Christ may live. Let me die that I might, might find my life not in this world, but that I might find my life in this infinitely great one, Christ Jesus. May that be our prayer. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would so work in us this evening. Help us. Help us, each of us, in the various ways we need to do it in our own lives, to put away our childish immaturity, cause us to grow up. Lord, cause us increasingly to hunger for your word, hunger for that solid food of the gospel and all of its beauty and new covenant fullness. May our souls long for our Savior, long for his word, long for his kingdom, long for his righteousness. O oh Lord God, nourished by him, then more and more granted in true faith and obedience, we might grow up into the fullness of our life in him. It's in, in his name we pray. Amen.